0: Welcome to the afternoon show. I'm Bill Arnold. Thank you for joining me today. Hope you've had a great day. You know, I've had people say, How do you get your guests? Where do you find guests? Which is a great question. And this guest that I'm going to be meeting for the first time today uh, was recommended by a friend in my Bible study. He had read his book uh, over this summer and he reached out to him and said, Well, your book was awesome. And then he contacted me and said, You should consider having him on your show. So I thought, I'd love to, and here he is. My guest is Dr. Jesse Hamilton, and he's uh, written a couple books. The one that I've read uh, is called Discipleship and the Evangelical Church, A Critical Assessment. That's what we're going to be talking about today with him. He's also written another book called Prayer, The Church's Great Need, and I'm going to read that one as well. But uh, Jesse has uh, over 20 years of experience in Christian ministry, including uh, more than uh, seven years on the mission field in Asia. He got his uh, master's, and then he went on and got his uh, Ph.D., and he studied uh, in the University of of, uh, Nottingham. I think that's how they say it over there. You know, in the States, I go, Nottingham. I don't think that's right, though. Jesse, welcome to the show.
1: Thanks so much for having me.
0: Yeah, isn't it just like an American to say Nottingham?
1: Uh, Yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm not really sure how they say it over there,
0: to be honest. Well, I was corrected by one of my guests over there. He goes, it's Nottingham. It's Nottingham. So I thought, all right. Yeah. One for you. Yeah. So welcome yeah. to the show. Uh, I Because this is your first time, I'd love for you to let my listeners uh, know a little bit about you. You've got a fascinating story. Uh, I'm reading your book going, oh, come on.
1: <laughs> it just gets
0: more interesting as it goes. Let's start with your uh, beautiful wife, Anna, who's a uh, world-class classical pianist.
1: Yeah, well, uh, Anna grew up in the Republic of Moldova. Um and uh she grew up really right after communism collapsed and uh, at that time, that country was really one of the poorest in the world and and so she and her family um, often had to work very hard to to really survive um, but they all had uh, musical talent. her parents were both musically gifted and and uh, went to school in some great conservatories and so raised the kids to be involved in music, and Anna showed promise and ability at an early age. And uh, at age 14, she was shipped off to Romania uh, to go to school there because the prospects were better. And then uh, right before the end of her high school years, uh, she heard that a famous pianist who was living in the States now who was actually from Moldova was coming back and was holding auditions, uh, because he was going to start a piano program in the States. And, uh, so as I say in my book, she hopped on a train and, uh, rode all night just to make it in time for the auditions. And, uh, after auditioning for him, which was a story in itself. Um, right,
0: we she, can't skip this part because this is fascinating.
1: Well, she, so, um, yeah. As she was playing in her audition for him, um, the lights in the auditorium went completely out. Um, and there was uh, some evidence that someone else did it, maybe trying to sabotage her performance or something like that. And, um, but, uh, she was able to get through the piece and, uh, the professor, uh, asked her to, uh, come to America right after that. Um, now I had been living in China at the time. And, uh, when my parents went back for a trip, we were all there overseas. They met Anna, and, uh, they, they came back and recommended her to me and, and <laughs> you know, uh, to so somebody that you are going to be interested in. And, and you know how it is when, when parents tell you that you're immediately like, well, okay, that's not somebody I'm going to be interested in, but <laughs> they, were, they were right. Yeah. Uh, they were right. And, um, uh, and when I when I met Anna, um, the Lord just really brought us together, and uh, and I began attending her concerts, and and uh, she began to wonder why, and and even though I did love classical music, uh, obviously there was more to it, and so uh, yeah, we we got married, and and uh, eventually ended back up in China, uh, but that but that that's another story.
0: Yeah, and it's a great story, and just when I thought there was going to be nothing else that's spectacular in your family. I meet I meet your dad Andy and I'm going, yeah. "Oh, you got to be kidding me. This is such a <laughs> cool story." So, let's hear about about dad.
1: Yeah, so uh my dad was raised in uh North Louisiana and, and was involved in sports at an early age and uh ended up uh excelling in football and uh ended up going to LSU and and becoming a very successful uh, football player there, broke a lot of records and, and had a lot of success as a wide receiver. Um, and, uh, and he actually became a Christian um, during the time at LSU. And uh, because of his status as a kind of celebrity, he began to speak and, and uh, he shared his testimony uh, in, in uh, 1970 at the Billy Graham Crusade. Um, which is actually available uh, online. You can find that testimony online. It's quite interesting. But uh, he he uh, he met my mom, who at the time was the daughter of the governor. So her her father uh, was the governor of Louisiana, John McKithen at the time. So they were kind of a high-profile uh, couple. But they both had become Christians, and uh, and so. Uh, they decided to go on and play professional football. That was, uh, it wasn't a a great way to make a living at the time in the seventies, but they decided to do that. And, and his career did not go very well. And he began to think, well, maybe there's, there's, um, you know, something more that the Lord has for me. And, and, uh, as he tells the story, he was, uh, he was playing for the saints. He initially got drafted by the Kansas city chiefs and ended up getting traded to the saints. And, uh, and he was playing uh, at Chicago in Soldier Field and uh, called a pass and was tackled and uh, separated his shoulder on the 42-yard line, as he liked to put it. And <laughs> he said that on the ground there in that freezing Chicago weather, he he felt the Lord calling him to something different finally and fully. And so uh, he actually felt the Lord calling him into ministry. And uh, so he became a pastor and uh, was a pastor in uh, near Shreveport, Louisiana, for uh, about 20 years. And uh, it was in that context that I grew up. And eventually, he and my mom decided to go and be missionaries. And they have been missionaries uh, in Asia for over 20 years now.
0: It's just a spectacular story. I mean, mm-hmm. the 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 fact that um, your dad had such a clear calling and went and lived out. Um, his calling when he was a significant celebrity and could have pretty mm. much led a pretty cushy life. I mean, I saw the picture of him in Sports Illustrated when uh, mm. LSU had won a game and, and th- there was a, a sea of people on the field. And then your dad was elevated on people's shoulders. And it's one of those almost iconic photos that you go, This is an amazing shot.
1: Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and it really and of course I talk about this in the book and that's one of the reasons why I tell the story it it really becomes a beautiful picture of how usefulness in the kingdom of God is is often behind the scenes and unnoticed and um and you know uh, as as I talk about of course uh, God often calls his servants to to do difficult things. And so we, in fact, it was during his time as a pastor that actually people began to wonder what had happened to him. And, uh, there was a newspaper reporter that showed up at our door one day, and he actually wrote an article in the local newspaper called, uh, whatever happened to Andy Hamilton. And, uh, and and that that sort of has been the pattern of my dad's life for the you know for the past fifty years or so since that time.
0: Yeah, it's a fantastic story. But let's let's get to your your book, discipleship, and the go Evan- oh, go ahead.
1: No, so yeah, that's great.
0: Let's get to uh, discipleship in the evangelical church. It's a, a book that I've enjoyed. I'm spending uh, a lot of time with it, and I'll read something and I'll think, huh. I have to put it down and walk around my house and then pick it up again and look at it a second time
1: because yeah.
0: I, I don't read and comprehend well. So I've, and you think uh, deeply and you write profoundly. So um, I'm, I've got all kinds of clips from your book. I'm going to have you uh, elaborate on if that's all right. But let's start with just what a definition of, of a disciple is because your book is called Discipleship and the Evangelical Church. What is a disciple?
1: Yeah, I think when you study the the use of the word disciple um, in the context and in the time period, it, it really just means someone who follows another person around in order to learn from them and eventually to become like them. Um, I think uh, it's clear when we when we study uh, the use of the word disciple that it was very common in the ancient ancient world. Um, Followers, you know, we see uh, followers and disciples, if you will, going all the way back to ancient Greece. Uh, by the time we get to to Bible times, uh, you know, we we see this practice of having disciples uh, is is already widespread. So, for example, when we open the Bible, we can see even before Jesus that John the Baptist. Had disciples, we see that in uh, in Matthew chapter nine. The Pharisees are mentioned as having disciples in Matthew twenty-two, and so um, it was. It's basically people who uh, follow someone um, and and want to learn from them, and eventually. Not only believe what they are teaching, but do what they are doing, and I, I would argue that that's certainly the concept of discipleship that we see from Jesus uh, in the New Testament. Um, so, um, in in fact, I, I'll just go on here. Um, you know, the the concept of discipleship, and this is what I talk about a little bit in my book, is is really the normal or standard category. That uh, that that is used in the New Testament to refer to what what we would call believers. Um, so, if you look at the Gospels, um, in the Book of John, for example, and often in Luke, and all the way through the Book of Acts, you see the word disciple used quite frequently, just to refer to all those who are following Jesus, all those who are believing in Jesus. Etc., um, and again, I would argue that it really is the standard term, I, and I think this is a really, really significant and important point that is is often overlooked. And in fact, it's not until Acts eleven that we actually see that uh, we we see Luke saying that the disciples were first called Christians um, in Antioch. So. Um, Anyway, back to your original question, um, I think uh, just to simplify, a disciple is uh, is someone who is a learner, is a follower, and uh, is an imitator.
0: All right, Jesse, I'm going to uh, take a break, but when I come back, I want to ask you more specifically about the word follower, because I know that's a big word, and I want to know what it means, because I look at some of the passages in Mark 8 and Luke 9, where Jesus tells people to be followers. And I want to discuss that a little bit more. Absolutely. Yeah, so Dr. Jesse Hamilton is my guest. His book is called Discipleship and the Evangelical Church. And we're going to take a little break. And our bumper music is his wife, Anna, playing piano. We would love for you to share your story about why you love faith radio and what has faith radio changed the way you think about something or even how you live we want to hear from you your story can encourage others and glorify god share what you love about faith radio by calling 877-933-2484 and leaving a message today It's amazing. The bumper music today is compliments of my guest's wife, Anna, who's a, a classical, a world-class pianist. And my guest is Dr. Jesse Hamilton, has written a book called Discipleship and the Evangelical Church. And Jesse, let me read something from your your book on discipleship and the Evangelical Church. It's You say that Jesus demands that his listeners deny themselves, lose their lives, take up their crosses, and follow him, among other things. But in the two passages, Mark 8 and Luke 9, Jesus' call comes immediately after his announcement that he will be killed. The call in these passages can thus be viewed as a sober warning to those who wish to follow Jesus of what lie ahead, as well as a warning not to abandon him in his hour of need.
1: Right. So, yeah, there, there are at least um, seven or so passages in the Gospel accounts where uh, Christ calls people to take up their crosses, deny themselves, and follow him. In a couple of those passages, it does occur um, during that context where Christ is specifically focusing on his his future death. And so there is a sense in which it can serve, and it does serve, in fact, as a warning that those who don't stay with Jesus during that time will, um, you know, will not be considered, as he says later, worthy of him. Um, so I think it's very important to, to understand that um, for, for Jesus, it's very clear, first of all, that he wants people to follow him. Um, and, uh, even though, as I go on to say those passages, there's some, some context sort of restrictions in those passages. If you look at the other passages where this call goes out, it's quite clear that, um, this is sort of the standard invitation that Jesus has for people who are seeking him. Um, and so for example, in Luke chapter nine, he says these words to everyone, Um, It says in the Luke 14 passages that he turns to the entire crowd who is following him. Um, In Matthew 10, he is uh, giving instructions for the apostles to go out and preach. And um, he says, he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. And I think that's intended for the, the listeners of the apostles. And so... I think what we're looking at here is in Jesus' day, it really was a literal requirement for people to follow him, but it also involved the necessity of being uh, loyal to him, of um, staying with him, of uh, of persevering when things got difficult, and, and all of those things. So I think all of that is bound up in, in what it means to follow, uh, But the, but there is more. To say about that, of course,
0: of course. So, in in chapter one, you do talk about the necessity and nature of discipleship. So, tell us why discipleship is really essential to being a Christian.
1: Yeah, I, I think this is a very important uh, question, and and of course, if if uh, we are well read, we know that this has been debated quite a bit in Christian history, especially uh, recently. Um, I think that um, as I said earlier, um, the the word disciple is really the, the uh, standard word that Jesus uses and that the, the gospel writers use to refer to a follower of Jesus. So I think right there, mm. uh, when, we're, when we're looking at this issue, we, we have to acknowledge that, uh, that there is no other category other than a disciple. There is no splitting uh, in the gospel accounts and in the book of Acts between believers and then disciples. uh, there really is only one category. Um, and if, if we move beyond just looking at the term disciple, I think we see this very clearly in, uh, in the teaching of Jesus. For example, uh, just the great commission, you could start with that where Jesus says, you know, go out into all the world and, and make disciples. Um, and uh, and then you know these passages that I talk about, um, I believe, really serve as Christ's uh, call, if you will. Um, it is it is his call to conversion. This idea that you have to take up your cross and follow him, and uh, it's it's a very strong call. Um, but uh, for for Jesus, I think it was clear that. Uh, you know, he is no ordinary teacher. He, and I talk about this in the book, he is, he is not after, uh, simply people who adhere to his teaching or, uh, believe in what he's saying or anything like that. But he is actually as, as God, as the Lord of the universe, uh, looking for worshipers, Mm -hmm. looking for people who will give him everything, um, and eventually looking for people who will follow him in his mission and uh, and and imitate him, carry out his mission in the world. Um, now, I know a lot of people, uh, you know, have an issue with that and think that that's, you know, that's kind of hard to reconcile with some other evidence in the Bible. But I think when you really look at what Christ is saying and uh, the evidence of the Gospels, it's really hard to to get around that.
0: So, Dr. Jesse Hamilton is my guest um, And I'm glad to be meeting him for the first time. Discipleship and the Evangelical Church is his book that we're talking about. And if you have any uh, questions or anything that you heard you want clarification on, let me know. The text line is always open for you, 877-933-2484. Jesse, you do say in your book that there are aspects of discipleship in Jesus' day that are not repeatable, clearly, but having already established that the concept of discipleship is the norm for all people at all times, what elements are translatable and repeatable?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I think that you know we just need to mention the obvious, and that is that we are not actually required to literally follow Jesus. That's obvious because Jesus is no longer here. So that brings that brings up the interesting question of what what does it mean then to follow him for us today. Um, but I think because, as I tried to say in the previous segment, I think that because Jesus makes this demand in discipleship a requirement um, for eternal life, you know, he says things like, if you don't follow me, you cannot be my disciple. Uh, whoever wishes to save his life um, uh, for my sake and the Gospels will will uh, lose it. And, uh, he, you know, who, who doesn't follow me is not worthy of me. Mm-hmm. I think that what we have to do is is think hard about what would it mean for us today to follow Jesus? And I think the elements that really leap off of of these passages is this issue of surrender. Mm. Um, I think when Christ called people to follow him, he was interested in in an absolute surrender of of our ambitions, of our plans, of our goals. Um, And in a complete uh, dedication to his mission. Um, I think that that was required literally in his day. Um, You know, he's got people coming up to him all the time, wanting to follow him. And and he's telling him, I don't think you understand really what it means. And so in our day, uh, it has to involve this, this sort of surrender of our own desires, plans, goals, ambitions, and this uh, dedication to the mission of Jesus. Um, and that's actually what the focus of my book is on. It's not so much arguing about the fact of discipleship or the necessity of discipleship, but trying to drill down uh, regarding what it means. And so, these four elements I mentioned are surrender, dedication, loyalty, and perseverance. Mm. Right. Um, and uh, yeah, especially these. I think these two issues of surrender and dedication are really the ones. Um, maybe for us today.
0: Yeah, let's talk about that some more after the break. Dr. Jesse Hamilton is my guest. His book is called Discipleship and the Evangelical Church. You can learn more about him by going to his website, Jesse B. Hamilton, J E S S E B H A M I L T O N dot com. We'll be right back. back to the show my guest jesse hamilton listens to this music all day long in his own household that's his wife playing anna she's a concert pianist and it's always great to hear great music i think was that bach i think that was bach do you know jesse
1: yeah Yeah, i don't think that was bach i can't remember i'm I'm so embarrassed to say don't don't
0: be embarrassed i don't you know (laughs) i just took a shot in the dark i don't even know (laughs) what i'm talking about (laughs) Anyway, let's get back to your book because it's fascinating. Your book is called Discipleship and the Evangelical Church. And here's something in your book, which I really liked. When you said a disciple of Jesus, uh, it also it means to imitate him. Jesus' disciples weren't mere learners in an academic sense. Jesus had a particular character. He both taught and exemplified, and he had a mission or purpose in life. His followers, obviously, were meant both to be like him in character and to do what he did. I just love that.
1: Hmm. Yeah, I and I I think that's really important for us to sort of meditate on, uh, because it's so easy to lose sight of that. I think, um, and and you know, there may be some disconnect uh in our modern world. Um there there I think we we all can acknowledge there's such a temptation and a tendency to get caught up and in all that we are doing and trying to accomplish, but it's just so, so helpful to go back to the the simple idea of what does it mean to be a follower of Jesus, and, it, and in simplest terms, yeah, means to do what He did. I um, love it. Yeah,
0: yeah, I love the fact that you stress simplicity of words. You love terminology. Terms are important. What we say. What words mean are important. I love that about uh, what you talk about in your book. Even in chapter one, you discuss both the gospel-centered movement and what is called the new perspective. I, what are you trying to say about these two movements in your in that chapter?
1: Right. Well, um, I, I, you know, did not exactly um, focus too much on these in my own personal graduate school. So, if you'll notice, I don't say much on those. Sure. But the purpose of having those two sections in is to avoid two, two extremes. Um, so the gospel-centered movement has been going for quite some time. It's going quite strong today, and it's really about trying to make the gospel central in our lives and in our worship and et cetera, in our churches. And, uh, and, and I think that's, that's incredibly right, and that's incredibly good. But if, we've been, if, if people have been paying attention, they will have noticed that um, that whole idea was a little bit abused in some contexts, um, where people began to sort of think a little bit like, um, if, if I'm saved or, or justified, my sins are forgiven, then maybe I can relax a little bit um, in terms of how I view sin or even in, in terms of how I'm following Jesus. Um, And, you know, this is something that um, has has been frequently uh, uh, criticized by Christian thinkers going back all the way, of course, to Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who talked a lot about this idea of cheap grace and uh, and. In, instead of that um, we need to also pay attention to the verses in the Bible that talk about our need for discipleship for holiness for perseverance and those kinds of things so I wanted to avoid that extreme but on the other side is this new perspective movement um, that's been going for I guess about a half century now and and um, some in those in that camp have try to say that the way we've been looking at the gospel is all wrong. You you get in maybe by faith, you're in a state of grace, uh, but in order to keep yourself in, you need to do good works and so works become that sort of necessary thing that keeps you in the state of grace and i think that's clearly wrong as well and uh and, and just i i personally have not been persuaded at all i've i've spent a good bit of time studying some of those texts and uh so we we have to avoid the two extremes of maybe um what bonhoeffer would call cheap grace and then what the new perspective would emphasize regarding works and that paves the way, I think, for us to have a healthy balance with understanding justification by faith and celebrating that and holding to that, while also giving weight to Christ's call to discipleship, the necessity of perseverance and holiness, and those kinds of things. Um, so, uh, hopefully, what I bring out in the book is enough to to help people steer uh, between those two extremes. Mm-hmm. Jesse, I don't hear people talk about
0: personal holiness very much. Do you?
1: No, no it's it's not it's it's not something that's emphasized, and that's a great uh, burden of, of mine as well. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, I think that um, you know when you really look into the biblical text closely, uh, take the Apostle Paul for example, um, Paul. Uh, preached this gospel of grace and of faith uh, really as clear as any of the biblical writers. He's he's really the, the person who perhaps clarified that the best, um, and yet he himself has some very sort of startling things to say about the necessity of holiness. So if you look uh, for example, in, uh, in the book of Romans, he's talking about the gospel in chapters 2 and 3 and 4 and 5. And yet then he goes on to, to say that, um, you know, if you don't continue in uh, putting, and I'm speaking from Romans 8 here, if you don't continue to uh, put sin to death by the power of the Spirit, um, you will die. Um, in Romans 8:12 uh, and 13, we are debtors to the flesh, uh, not to the flesh, sorry, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Uh, he says a similar sort of thing in uh, in Galatians 6. You know, do not be deceived, God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that he will also reap. The one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. So when the theology of Paul who understood justification by faith as clearly as anyone, there is a necessary connection between holiness and eternal life. Um, And the writer to the Hebrews says the same thing. And of course, we know that Jesus says this many times. And so we have to wrestle with, with what that means, but we can't dismiss this massive amount of biblical evidence on this issue in order to protect the the doctrine of justi- justification by faith, because the the Bible supports both both things.
0: Mm-hmm. In chapter two in, in your book, you you just you focus a lot of a lot on ambition. What mm-hmm. are you trying to say with that?
1: So yeah, this is this is interesting, Bill. So and actually, um, uh, and and I'll have to correct you on something. Sorry about this, but that's okay. Uh, It won't be the first time. Well, this is just a simple fact about my story. So I was in my Ph.D. program at the University of Aberdeen. I had just enrolled, and uh, the Lord actually got me out of it. Ah, okay. Uh, Yeah, so—and interestingly, um, I felt personally— that uh, continuing on to get my PhD, which was in philosophy at the time, would be to—it uh, just wasn't God's will for me, because it was really going to be more about my own ambition gotcha. than it was serving God. And so actually, this book that I that I published, Discipleship in the Evangelical Church, is sort of a replacement, if you will, of my thesis. I I gave up my uh, my thesis got out of the program began to seek the lord about what to do and and some christian friends told me well why don't why don't you write something that might be useful for the church and that that's an important that that's something that uh my wife anna struggled with early in her life she 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 wanted to guard against this idea that life is about me fulfilling my potential um life is about me maximizing my talents. But when you really look at the call of Christ to discipleship, it's a radical call to give everything up and submit those talents and ambitions to Christ. Now, if for and, and we can all point to, to believers that we know and love and appreciate who, of course, have maximized their talents, but I, I would argue that if they are true believers— it was because they initially surrendered those things to God from the heart and gave them to Him, in a sense. And uh, in the case of some people, you know, He gives them an opportunity to pursue them. He He gives them back, in a sense. But I think um, my concern in the book is that Christians, especially in the West, really come to grips with this idea of, who am I living for? Mm-hmm. Am I Really living for Christ? Have I really come to a point in time in my life when I have surrendered my own ambitions to Jesus and said, what do you want me to do with my life? And I think if Christians would go back in the Bible and see that there in the call of Christ and spend time really searching their hearts, I think that a lot of things that are misfocused, a lot of misplaced priorities, and frankly, a lot of distractions in the church would be removed. Um, You know, if we really understand that our purpose in life is to Give ourselves over completely to the service of Jesus. I think it would make a huge impact across all of Christian society, um, you know, in in how we do church, in uh, how we spend our time, and uh, even things that we pursue in the workplace, out of the workplace, all of that. And so, that's that's really something that I try to focus on. And, you know, I, I use the example of um, Lilius Trotter uh, in, in the book, who was a very famous artist in Victorian England, who was approached by John Ruskin, who was a famous art critic and artist and teacher. And he told her, listen, if you come and study with me, you know, you can be a really great artist, maybe the greatest artist of your day. And she felt that Christ had not called her, just as an ordinary believer, to pursue her own ambitions, but to pursue the mission of Christ. And wow. so she went and became a missionary. She continued to paint. But the important aspect here, and, and this is what I try to say in the book, I think this is important for us to wrestle with. There's an emphasis in, in the Scriptures, and the Apostle Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians 2 on The more you sort of give up and surrender for God, especially regarding your own self, your own abilities, your own talents, your own wisdom, the more of the Holy Spirit will be unleashed in your life. And there's a contrast um, in in 1 Corinthians 2 and some other places in in the Bible between, um, or I should say there's a connection between surrendering to God more and more and then having more and more of God's influence in your life. And Lilia Strotter talks about this as a narrowing of your life's focus, of your ambitions, of your desires, and really zooming in on the person of Christ and the mission of Christ. And as she says, that's how God's power is unleashed. And so I my my prayer in communicating some of that in the book is that the church would just begin to think about that maybe more and more.
0: Yeah. Well, I appreciate the correction, and I I, I did jump around your book a whole bunch as I'm doing prep for an interview, and I glanced at chapter two, and I raced to chapter three because that was entitled Prayer and the Holy Spirit, and I couldn't wait to start reading that. So I had a question based on on that. I mean, you do argue that the matters of prayer and the the Holy Spirit are perhaps the, the two most important and yet misunderstood issues in the Christian life. What does the church need to understand about these important issues? Well, Bill— That's the question, and I do do need to take a break, but when I come back, I'll wait for your answer. I'll repeat the question when I come back. Jesse Hamilton is my guest. I'll take a break and be right back. Lovely bumper music is being played by my guest's wife Anna. This uh, she's a, a concert pianist, and Jesse Hamilton is my guest. His book is Discipleship and the Evangelical Church. And right before a break, Jesse, I, I threw out that uh, question, and I'll, I'll repeat it um, because you argue that the the matters of prayer and the Holy Spirit are, you know, probably the two most important yet misunderstood issues in the Christian life. What So what does the church need to understand about these issues?
1: Yeah, so, um, you know, just keeping it simple about prayer, um, since I returned to the United States from the mission field, I've had an opportunity to be in various churches, and it just seems like uh, prayer is something that is just either not there at all in churches or um, it's there, but it's sort of combined with uh, worship in in a, in a way where um, not that much prayer is actually happening. Um, and and so I think if the church really, uh, if we really want to see a work of God in our midst, the church is going to have to recapture the urgency and, and absolute importance of intercessory prayer uh, as, as a consistent, regular practice in, in our congregations. And I'm basing that simply on the many and repeated injunctions in the New Testament regarding the necessity of prayer. You know, prayer is talked about in Paul's writings frequently, and almost every time he brings it up, as we all know, he says things like pray without ceasing, continue in prayer, and things like that. Um, And so, you know, when we compare uh, the sort of urgency in the writings of Paul and in the life and ministry of Jesus regarding the place of prayer to our modern church practices, I mean, clearly something's gone wrong. Um, we could, we could argue maybe all day about what it is that's gone wrong. Um, I, I, I do think that there are churches that are trying to pray. Um, but I think that again, uh, when we look at all the things that the church is doing and then the time that they give to prayer or the amount of participation that they have in their prayer meetings, it's just something again is not right um, I had the privilege of uh, leading a prayer team uh, in a in a large church um, a few years ago and uh, you know, it was just a struggle. Um, and so in my book, I try to talk about, honestly, you know, the fact that it's difficult to pray. Um, it's, it's one thing to pray sort of in a habitual way or to pray when there's a time of crisis. I think we all become, you know, sort of champions of prayer uh, during those moments but to uh, intercede in prayer and to do so consistently um is something that the church i think desperately needs to recapture now you you said why well, in addition to the fact that it's mentioned so much in the Word of God, there there is a connection between prayer and the Holy Spirit that's presented in the New Testament that I think the church as well desperately needs to recover. So, you know, we know that um, different views of the Holy Spirit abound in our day and age, and... Um, uh, you know there are there are what I think a lot of us would call extremes on both sides. You go in some denominations and you never hear mention of the Holy Spirit. You go into others and and it seems like it's all spiritual things all the time. Um, so there needs to be that balance. But for me, um, I I think the thing that leaps off of the page, if you will, in the New Testament is how really. We are dependent upon the Holy Spirit, upon God's power all the time. And there is a unique relationship between prayer and obtaining the Holy Spirit's power. So Jesus says this clearly, um, you know, if you ask the Father, will he not give the Holy Spirit to all who ask him? Um, but then you see uh, in, in places like Ephesians chapter six, where Paul enjoins us to join, uh, to get involved in the battle. Um, and he says, praying at all times in the Spirit. And so in my view, to be perfectly honest, uh, praying in the power of the Holy Spirit um, for God's power to work for yourself or in your church or in your community or around the world is something that with without it, I don't think you can hope to have any success in what you are doing. And so I think somehow— you know we've got to uh we've got to in my opinion c- recommit as uh congregations and as a christian community to this matter of regular consistent dependence upon the spirit of god in prayer um and again i think there are a lot of different reasons why uh, prayer has fallen by the wayside i think the main thing is that it's it's just difficult to do um you know and there's so many things that distract us Yeah. And, but but it also frankly could indicate um and I talk about this a little bit in the book that we don't have the heart for God that maybe um that he has or that his spirit has uh you know uh, uh it it talks about the holy spirit interceding for us with groanings too deep to be uttered this really interesting uh passage and so the holy spirit is is very Whatever else we can say about the Holy Spirit is he is a being who is completely passionate uh, about the glory of God, the honor of God, the success of the gospel, rescuing people saving people, loving people, helping people. And so if the Spirit is interested in those things above all and is praying for those things, then we've got to figure out how to get that Spirit back in the church.
0: Mm -hmm. Jesse Hamilton is my guest. You also mentioned regarding prayer, Jesse, that uh, prayer takes time and silence and solitude and that sometimes we're just too overstimulated to sit for very long.
1: Yeah, yeah. And I I think we can all— um, admit that, and and I think that's a unique feature of who we are as modern believers and modern Christians. And I think we need to fight these tendencies to just sit around and waste time, um, maybe to entertain ourselves too much, or to feel like we always have to be doing something. Um, but I think, and again, talk about this in the book as well. I don't, I don't think the message for the church is to be discouraged about it or to think. You know, this is some sort of duty that I have to perform. I really think, honestly, if, if congregations would begin to take baby steps, as it were, in this, and just getting together uh, occasionally during the week uh, with friends, coworkers, even doing it virtually, um, and just, you know, starting to just pray a little bit and learning how to pray, and especially lifting others up in prayer— um you know i think i think that would be something to build upon
0: i did find it interesting when you had uh, you and your wife had joined a, a fairly large uh, church and you thought well your wife was going to go into the nursery and you thought well I'll, I'll go into the the prayer ministry and you walked in there and you were almost shocked to see such few people and not being yeah. critical of anything but it's a, a, a lively vibrant church and the prayer ministry was was pretty anemic, and I don't know if that's the case or if there's less of it going on, but it certainly is uh, important to be uh, getting this going again.
1: Yeah, absolutely, and in my opinion, it's it's absolutely fundamental because I believe that, you know, if we don't have the, the Holy Spirit working, then we're just doing it in our flesh, uh, as the Bible says, and that that's, that's when problems start happening.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, your, your book is interesting and I, I read much of it and I am uh, pleased to say that it provoked a lot of deep thoughts and it gave me a lot of things to think about. And when it came to uh, just the, the issue of holiness, and I've said this many times, people don't seem to want to talk about it. And then my producer, Rosie, said to me, is, is he talking about holiness from a position standpoint or from a behavioral standpoint? Yeah. And, yeah.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I think yeah, I, I would just say that that uh when when you look at the writings and the words of Christ and the apostle Paul, I, I believe that something people need to wrestle with is that there there is also an element of behavioral or actual holiness that seems to be in play in a lot of those passages. Yeah. So that's something that I think would cause people to it, it would just be like, "Really? Maybe I need to take a closer look at this."
0: Yeah. So, thank you for uh, agreeing to do the show. It's been so nice meeting you and it's uh, I've enjoyed I've enjoyed your book and I appreciate you spending time with us this afternoon.
1: Thank you so much for having me on, Yeah,
0: Thank you so much, Jesse. Hamilton has been my guest. You can learn more about him at jessebhamilton.com and his book is called Discipleship and the Evangelical Church: A Critical Assessment. That's all our show for today. Thank you uh, for spending time with me. I hope you have uh, had a good day and I hope you have a lovely evening. And I know we've got a lot going on in our world and tomorrow is election day. So lots to think about there, but I hope you uh, get a nice restful night of sleep as you lay your head on the pillow. You can just be absolute certain that we are following the mission of of Christ and that God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life as he always uh, does. He loves you. I do too. Have a great night. I'll see you tomorrow